0: The Mortasab go to Arahatur, some ma, some Buddha sa. The Mortasab go to Arahatur, some ma, We've had a lovely uh, mid-winter's day, which has felt more like an early spring day, and also it's been made even more lovely by seeing Michael commit to taking on this year's training as an Anagarika in this renunciate community. Also, the other very significant aspect of today is that we're marking the Magha Puja, the full moon of this month of Magha, which actually the full moon doesn't arrive for another two days yet, but for convenience sake we're observing it today. And what we're observing and what we're... Reflecting on, remembering is that occasion 2,600 and something years ago when 1,250 fully awakened beings spontaneously descended on their teacher, the Buddha, and came to pay their respects to to their teacher. And as I was mentioning this morning at the meal, those of you that were here, there was a a teaching which the Buddha gave on that occasion, which is known as the Avada Patimoka, which he gave in response to a question he was asked. And it's a tremendously important teaching. It's at the very, very core. Uh, interestingly, not just at Theravadan Buddhist teachings, which tend to give emphasis to the Four Noble Truths, but also those of you that have studied Mahayana teachings, which they emphasize other aspects of cultivation uh, you also come across this same teaching and one of the lines in this teaching the Awadha Patimoka there's, there's a line that says this is the teaching of all the Buddhas this is uh, something that our Buddha taught but also the teaching that other Buddhas taught and Possibly it's the case that if this is the only teaching one ever heard of the collection of Buddha's teachings, it might be enough. It's it's that important. So I thought this evening, as we're marking this occasion, we could consider together at least a part of this brief teaching, the Moka. And in the middle of this, there's four lines, which those of you that have been coming for a while will be very... Familiar with, which in Pali, these four lines say, Sabba papasa akaranam kusalasa upasampada, Satchita paryotapanam, Etang Buddha nasasanam. They're saying that last line, Etang Buddha nasasanam. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. But the three lines prior to that, if we could consider together, this evening. It's interesting to see the way these teachings are structured. It's not just for some reason of, of poetic beauty and, and ease of recitation or memory. There's a very real reason why the Buddha presented these teachings in this way. And the first line, subha papas akanang, which literally translates as refrain from doing that which should not be done. This is like preparing the ground. We uh, perhaps have come across some spiritual teachings and been inspired and uplifted and encouraged and energized and feeling enthusiastic or faith and confidence that there is something we can be doing about our lives. We have this potential as human beings to cultivate profound beauty, cultivate consciousness in the direction of something truly altruistic, selfless. From the Buddha's perspective, the realization of unshakable wisdom and compassion. So if we hear these teachings and feel motivated and encouraged by them, and, but then we come across the way the Buddha presented his teachings, and that first line there, Refrain from doing that which is unskillful, that which should not be done. Papakama, things that definitely should not be done. Akarnam, should not be done. And why is this so important? Well, we don't have to think very far to look at any other area of our lives where if we don't prepare the ground, then the other stuff that we do later can get spoiled or doesn't bear fruit, You're planting trees and you don't remove enough of the rocks. The tree's not going to grow. The seeds are not going to germinate. And You need to prepare the ground. the same. If you're a construction worker and we don't build the foundations, we don't prepare the materials properly. Or if you're in a kitchen, you don't clean the kitchen adequately. You may have the best food, but the food might turn out dangerous to eat or medical procedures, and anybody who's done any medical practices would know that keeping the environment sterile and free from the risk of infection, that's the beginning. And so this is where the Buddha wanted us to establish the foundation of our spiritual life on recognizing that which should not be done in preparing the ground if we don't prepare the ground, then we rush ahead based on inspiration and enthusiasm as an inspiring and uplifting as as dwelling on love and light might be. Uh, we might find that we're uh, disappointed. And so there are those aspects of our human existence which need to be curtailed. And we need to recognize we do have harmful impulses. We're not merely moralising about these things, but just recognising how tremendously important it is to consciously establish the boundaries within which we're going to live our spiritual life, defining the frame of reference within which we're going to do our spiritual work, the field within which we're going to operate. And for most people, this is explained in the five precepts and again those of you that were here this morning at the meal have this lovely gathering of of people coming to mark this occasion reflect on the good fortune of having access to spiritual teachings which give us real benefit and nourishment the most deep and meaningful level and how do we begin the gathering well it's not by offering all the food and that they brought. But the first thing we do is we establish the five precepts, redetermine the five precepts. That's that's a fundamental, basic recognition that if we don't exercise discipline around how we act and speak, then we run the risk of undermining so much potential goodness. There was an occasion when our teacher, Ajahn Chah, was teaching a retreat in, in America On this occasion, he was invited to speak with the retreatants at uh, the Centre in IMS in Barrie, Massachusetts. And and his way of illustrating the emphasis that needs to be placed on the precepts is he said, you know, you can be sitting here on retreat doing all this good work, but you lose it if you then go out and behave in ways that are unethical, not impeccable. He used the example, he said, it's like, it was a bit rough, but he, he said you're like a bunch of criminals who you end up getting caught. In other words, you end up in such a pit of suffering that you've got to put yourself through an ordeal like this retreat and and then you get a smart lawyer like me to get you out again. And But then you go out and you just start doing the same crimes all over again, graphically alluding to the the risk of giving ourselves to spiritual disciplines and exercises and but if it's not grounded in a conscious commitment and recognition of the place of integrity which is what these precepts symbolize if it's not grounded in that well then there's a risk we're going to lose the benefit so so this is the pairing the ground this is the foundation this is the beginning subha papasa recognizing and committing to living within this frame of reference which is our field of integrity. And then the next line, kusalasa upasampada, which is if we've got the ground then we build up the potency of goodness. building up a storehouse of goodness. Sometimes Buddhism is understood as a philosophy and, and it's okay to just study what other people have said and written and about Buddhism and to spend a lot of time thinking about Buddhism. The Buddha wanted us to understand it's much more than that. It's not merely a philosophy. In fact, the Buddha didn't teach philosophy what he taught was a set of skillful means, upaya, and using the Pali language, a set of skillful means for recognizing these potentials we have as human beings, these faculties, these spiritual faculties, and cultivating them, recognizing them and cultivating them. And in cultivating them, we build up this potency of goodness. It's one thing to refrain from doing that, which we shouldn't do, and there are some religions that that seems to be the main emphasis. Don't do this and don't do that. And if we restrain ourselves from doing the things we shouldn't do, then that would be enough. And, well, the Buddha said that's the ground. That's nowhere near enough. That's that's the ground. That's, that's the first stage of preparation. Essential. But once we have a recognition and and a commitment to cultivating the ground, then we need to build up the storehouse of goodness. And and that comes with this recognition of our spiritual potential. And again, it's not just a belief system. In fact, the first of the spiritual faculties is faith, which is very different from belief. And belief tends to be something that happens in our head. We have a concept of some principle, albeit virtuous principle, and then we... Tend to hold to that principle, and we say, "I believe in this," and and certainly you can give rise to lots of good feelings if you hold tightly enough. And but faith is deeper. I think of faith as like the fragrance, the fragrance of if, if you look at a flower, if you look at wild honeysuckle for instance you can, you can see the colour, you can photograph the colour, you can touch it, you can feel the woodiness of it you can taste the nectar, you can pluck honeysuckle and suck the nectar but there's this fragrance which is, it's another dimension the sight the texture, the taste of honeysuckle they, they're all part of honeysuckle but then there's this other part the fragrance which is a really important part of that experience. And the spiritual experience or the spiritual adventure has this really essential element to it, which the Pali word is Suntar, which the first of the five spiritual faculties. If we're going to build up the storehouse of goodness, we need to know this potential. And it's not just believing. Like what Michael did this evening, is not clinging to some belief system that pits him against other, other belief systems, but rather this heart quality, this deeper sense of trusting, although I think faith is more than trusting, having confidence. And I think faith is more than having confidence as well. In the English language, I don't think we have another word for faith, really. But it's tremendously relevant To the spiritual journey. It's that dimension which means that we can accommodate utter uncertainty without our hearts collapsing. It's not a matter of knowing. In fact, when we turn to faith it's often because we don't know. It is akin to trust. It is akin to confidence. What it is, like all experience actually we can't really say what it is we have these approximations you know, like you know, these words that we use like faith and well, the rest of the five spiritual faculties energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom the, the five spiritual faculties we can say them in Pali we could say them in Thai we could say them in Burmese we could say them in Chinese we could say them in English but they're all approximations. They're not the same thing. The word faith is not that to which this word is alluding. And That's actually important to remember. Like the Buddha image that we bow down to is not the Buddha. It's definitely not the Buddha. It doesn't matter who steals or destroys or damages that Buddha image. It doesn't make any difference at all to the Buddha. The Buddha is... A quality of consciousness that has been purified of all distortions, all greed, hatred and delusion. All that's left is the expression of perfect wisdom and compassion, a being that has realized the full potential of consciousness is not capable of operating out of greed, hatred and delusion. It's just not possible. So this process, this training that, like this evening, Michael has committed himself to, or on that occasion, and. 2,600-something years ago, those 1,250 fully awakened beings had realized for themselves they had followed this path of training, of refraining from that which should not be done, cultivating goodness, building up a storehouse of goodness, kusalasa upasampada, recognizing what is faith, what is spiritual energy, what is mindfulness, what is concentration, what is wisdom then working on them, investing in them. And, and this community and the reason people live here or, or visit here is because they have already recognized this potential. Everybody knows they've got eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body sense, but not everybody unfortunately knows that they've got this potential for faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. And we can rabbit off these words. But in themselves, they, they don't really mean anything. But what they allude to is profoundly important. If we're interested in this work of realizing what the beauty, the real benefit that awakened beings have demonstrated, if we're really interested in this then we're interested in these spiritual potentials and these sources of goodness. To have access to faith when we're really faced with utter uncertainty, excruciating chaos, and yet the heart doesn't collapse, the mind doesn't become overwhelmed, there's still something there which means that we can remember behind this apparent chaos... There's the possibility of discovering order, or what in Buddhism we call Dhamma, reality, actuality. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the actuality is obscured. Mm-hmm. But with faith, even if we haven't seen or can't see at that time the order, the reality, the truth, the actuality, mm-hmm. there's still faith that sustains us. That's very important probably sadly many of us know those who lose faith in life lose faith in themselves the consequences can be tragic so cultivating this potential learning how to stay open, stay sensitive even when it looks like everything's falling apart well it looks like this maybe it is this way but maybe it's not the Buddha's teaching on the middle way is that perspective of awareness which doesn't deny the way things appear to be it's not preaching a gospel that we have to cling to it's not saying it isn't this way it's just wait get interested in the reality and getting interested interest is another way of understanding what's meant by very or energy the second of the spiritual faculties and How to be motivated. Life can be, really, at times can be very hard work. How can we stay motivated to look beyond the way things appear to be? To recognize that potential. To remember the central significance of mindfulness. uh, sattvi, that watchfulness. uh, The Buddha referred to as like, the image he gave as like, The gatekeeper standing at the gate in the city wall watching who comes in and who goes out, that watchfulness, that alertness. You can't be sloppy, you can't be casual. Mm -hmm. And at a time when our society holds up the values of the casual culture, pretty much above most other things, actually, it's really important that we train our hearts and minds to remember this watchfulness This is what protects us. The the good fortune that we've inherited in this circumstance we find ourselves in is protected by such qualities as mindfulness, watchfulness. Concentration, Mm. recognising the place of disciplining attention. No, it's not just the case that we can Mm. sleep when we want and say what we like and do whatever we want If we don't exercise the right kind of discipline of attention, then attention becomes diluted. Anybody who hasn't exercised any discipline of attention by the age of 40 has started to dry up. That's why for many people around that age there's something, sadly, like a midlife crisis happens. They're starting to lose connection with their goodness, with their potential. For some people, the in the discipline of attention means cultivating highly refined states of concentration and developing very, very subtle states of absorption. With that, however, comes great risk, because there's great power, there's tremendous power in those states, and at least there's the way the Buddha and the great teachers have described them, that, Unless we're really thoroughly balanced emotionally and on all levels, then actually that power doesn't necessarily serve us so well. But that's not necessary. We don't have to all go out and become experts at developing super-refined states of concentration. But we do all need to be able to steady the mind, collect attention so that we can read, just as like being able to read a book. Or read instructions like at the railway station you can't look down the arrivals and departures well it's pretty difficult really you need to be able to focus attention enough to be able to read and extract the information well likewise with our hearts and bodies and minds we need to be able to extract the information that our senses are giving us and reflect on it, analyse it, interpret it and the service of, which is the fifth of those spiritual faculties is wisdom in this case in Pali referred to as Panya, the faculty of discernment, being able to ask just the right question at just the right time in just the right manner, so as the tangle of confused mental activity, a confused heart, starts to undo and starts to flow again Probably all of us have the experience of feeling stuck, feeling obstructed, feeling lost, feeling bogged down, caught up. From the perspective of Dhamma, from the perspective of the Buddha's teachings, this is not a sign of failure. This is just an indicator of the work we need to do. This is where we need to turn the compost into manure, that raw compost if we don't understand it, we might trash it, throw it out. But, but if we understand the potential of compost, we can we can cook it, we can store it, we can work it until it turns into really useful manure. Yeah. In other words, real goodness. So this short teaching from the Buddha, refraining from doing that which should not be done, cultivating goodness, kusalasa upasampada is... It's important that we recognise we have these potentials, these spiritual faculties need to be recognised and cultivated. But that also is not the end, that's not the point. Refraining from doing that which should not be done, which is hurtful, abusive, unkind. Building up goodness, that also is not enough in itself. Because probably again, as most of us will recognise, you can be busy being in Thoroughly impeccable and utterly moral and ethically sound, and still be seriously conceited. Or you can be building up a storehouse of goodness and be wonderfully generous and kind and thoughtful, but be utterly full of yourself. The third line of this stanza there, Satchita Pariyota Panang, purification of the heart. That in this spiritual training, we also need to keep in focus that the real core of all of our confusion is the lack of understanding around this perception of me. Self. This is one thing that the, one aspect of the Buddha's teachings which is radical at the time the Buddha was around and remains radical today. Anatta, selflessness and not self, what on earth was the Buddha talking about? not self We know the Buddha talked about impermanence, that everything's impermanent, and be careful about clinging to things, thinking that things are permanent, there are no things that are permanent and perhaps we can get our head around the fact that if all things physical, mental, emotional, things, conditions are in a state of flux are changing are impermanent, perhaps we can. Get a head around the fact that if we cling to those things, then we're going to be generating a sense of stress, a sense of dissatisfaction. And so we have the Buddha's teachings on impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, but then there's this other one of not self. What was the Buddha getting at? And many times I've heard people talk about, I can't get my head around that. And what well, is important that when we're considering this really core issue, if we're really looking for purification, for awakening, for real freedom, that we do need to look into this perception of selfhood, see beyond the way it merely appears to be. If we're keen on that, we're interested in that, well then we need to do much more than just approach it as a philosophy, the Buddha didn't teach philosophy, didn't teach theology, didn't teach ontology. That was not the way the Buddha approached the spiritual journey. The Buddha's approach was, as in Pali, it's called dhamma vichaya, or investigation. Again, with that consideration of the cultivation of the storehouse of goodness, he wanted to show us that we have these potentials, human beings have these potentials, which, if we cultivate them, then there's this possibility. If we don't cultivate them, then there isn't this possibility. The possibility are referring to is the realization of complete purified consciousness, the realization of real wisdom and compassion, which brings immeasurable benefit for oneself and others. And once again, though, that's these words. This is not something to merely believe in, but it's a mm. The Buddha talked about it as a pointing. He said, I can but point the way. He walked it, and other realized beings have walked it. They've looked into the apparent nature of self, me and my way, and they've realized that even though it looks like there's a solid, substantial somebody there, when you look really closely, you can't find it. And so that's the invitation, "Sachita pariyotapanam. The purification of the heart can be understood as that effort. There's was always understanding it, but one way of understanding it is that effort to look into the deluded perception we have of the permanence of self. That me and my way are somehow ultimate. From the Buddha's perspective, from the perspective of awakened consciousness, this is another apparent reality. Just the same as like you wake up in the morning and even though before you went to bed you thought I'm going to get up at such and such a time and I'm going to do an extra half an hour of meditation because that really sets me up for the day but then you wake up in the morning oh what was I thinking I was obviously confused I need another half an hour of sleep if you're utterly convinced by that I need another half hour of sleep which perception was real perception of I really should get up I want to get up I'm going to get up or the perception of I need another half hour of sleep apparent perceptions get us into all sorts of confusions because we don't see beyond, we only see the surface reality, the way it feels, the way it appears to be like when there's hatred in the heart, it feels like it's always going to be this way in fact that's how we can understand what's referred to as hell eternal hell is that perception, when we're possessed by hatred or by terror, when there's no perspective on that, no frame of reference from which we can observe these states, it feels eternal. People act, sadly, tragically, accordingly. However, there is wisdom, there is clear seeing, for those beings who have done their spiritual work, And even for those who are on the journey and who have their spiritual faculties functional, they say, well, it looks like this. It really looks like I should have another half an hour's sleep. But I've been fooled before. I'm not going to believe it. Get up. Have another half an hour of meditation. Feel great. Mm. Or going to the gym. Working out, doing some exercise. Oh, I can't be bothered. I'll just give myself a break today. No, I don't believe it. I'm going to do it you do it and you feel great that was delusion well on a more subtle a much more subtle level but um, similar following a similar pattern uh, this investigation into not self is an inquiry into this feeling perception we have of the substantiality of me and my way when it There really feels important. I want, I believe, I have to have, I will not, I object, this is mine. And these perceptions can be utterly convincing and lead to all sorts of personal, relational, international conflicts and difficulty. Well, the Buddha's solution to all these difficulties, all these complex issues, is to exercise our faculties so as to be able to see beyond the way things appear to be and see that this greed, hatred and delusion are not an obligation but the consequence of unawareness we can get a sense of the insubstantiality of me and my way just start to question it which is the real me the one that determined to wake up before I went to bed, or the one that doesn't want to get up now, which is the real me. At the time, I really felt like me. Yeah. Well, the me that's going to give up eating sugar. Yeah, i got to stop eating chocolate. I love chocolate. Chocolate-covered marzipan. It's ultimate. How could anybody not love chocolate-covered marzipan? But it doesn't do me any good. I get headaches. I put on weight. I've got to stop eating chocolate-covered marzipan. Very clear, convinced, determination. And then somebody puts chocolate-covered marzipan in front of me, and I eat it. How did that happen? Where's the me? Where's the real me? Where's the real me? Mm. I sometimes think about it as like looking at a rainbow. And, oh, there's a rainbow. and Should we go and have a closer look at it? Yeah, take a photo of it. Or perhaps it's a really particularly vivid rainbow. and in a beautiful landscape, and you've captured this rainbow, and so you then go to look close at the rainbow, and the closer you get to it, of course, you recognize that there isn't anything it's a function of light being refracted through water particles. Now we talk like that it's not particularly wonderful or lovely you know, compared to the beauty of a rainbow, but it's true so Similarly, the investigation, the work of investigating the experience, the perception, the feeling of selfhood, it's not necessarily easy. It can be very hard work. In fact, the Buddha referred to it as, he said, conquering a thousand times a thousand people in battle is easier than conquering this deluded sense of selfhood. Of course, he wasn't in any way advocating battle there, he was... Alluding to the enormity of the task. So, once again, this occasion of marking the Magga Puja and the time when the Buddha gave this short but profound teaching, let's remind ourselves that however overwhelming or confusing. Our experience can sometimes be that there is this possibility, there is this encouragement, there is this effort that can be made that's really worthwhile. It can feel like it's not worthwhile. It could feel like it's all too much. And maybe everybody around us is talking like there's something going wrong. There's nothing going wrong. There never was anything going wrong. There never will be anything going wrong unless we have the idea and then make the decision that it's wrong. Certainly conditions can be difficult and can be painful and can be complex. Hard to understand and to see beyond. But to make it wrong, to turn it into a problem is something extra that we add to it. Once again from the Buddhist perspective, this is, the, this is, this is called delusion. This is, this is a regrettable misperception of our experience. We also have this possibility of refraining from that which should not be done, cultivate goodness, purifying consciousness, and then nurturing the faith we have, That this is what the Buddha wanted us to do. This is encouraged by beings who are truly wise. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.